This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Well, hey, everybody. I'm excited about today's conversation. I am sitting virtually across from my good friend, Marisa Perez-Diaz, who is our State Board of Education representative and is leading the work in both advocacy and just um, in general supporting the work that everybody is doing right now, which is not easy work. Um, So I'm going to give her a a couple of minutes to just say hello, tell us about the work she's engaged in right now, and let us know how it's going. Yeah, well, it's so great to be with you um, today, Jen, with all of your listeners. Uh, it's, It's been a really different time. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody that's listening in or you that everything looks different. Education looks different how you navigate family looks different. And so it, it's, it's definitely uh, been a time where we can challenge, I think, uh, social norms and, uh, and really uh, impact a system that's been shaken so much that, you know, I think that silver, the silver lining in all of this is that the vulnerability of the system allows for us to be creative with how we take it on moving forward. And so it's been really exciting in the work that I do on the State Board of Education. We most recently um, were working a lot on, we passed in April the African-American Studies curriculum for high school credit. And so that happened very shortly after COVID kind of just went haywire in, in the state. And so as I was working on that, conversations about equity continue to come up, not just about race, but as COVID advanced and we saw so many issues you know, come to the forefront regarding who has access to healthcare, who has access to um, resource, digital, the digital divide is a real thing. All of that, all of that happened at the same time, you know, and then in May, you know, we saw, unfortunately, the things that happened with, um, with George Floyd and with Breonna Taylor. And so it's been, it's just, I've been having a lot of conversations around what equity is and how that relates to race and how that relates to access to resource. So it's been really interesting because my conversations have typically been, you know, centered on how to develop curriculum and how do we 
make sure that it's inclusive, but that's completely taking on a different kind of definition in these conversations. Um, and so that's just one piece of what we've been doing, but the state board's also been looking at our health education standards and our PE standards. And so it's interesting to see how our work has continued through all of this, but above it all is just how do we do education and how do families navigate education? How do teachers who are parents navigate the situation? Because that's an even bigger challenge. Um, and I can go on forever about this. No, all of those things. I'm like, which one do we want to talk about first, right? Like what, what does equity mean in today's context? And I feel like everybody had a dictionary definition of what equity was and an ideal that we would, we would obviously promote. But in light of everything that's happened in the last four months, I feel like for me, especially, it's so much more heart. It like it hit me in my heart. Like I, I don't know another way to put it except that it was like soul crushing to see the context that we're living in and that so many other people live in every day. And to not, I feel like I just didn't have the right kind of awareness to actually um, be the sort of ally or advocate that I would want someone to be for me. And so I think how do, I mean, for me, ground zero of, of uh, creating those kinds of allies and advocates is in our classrooms. But if I don't know how to do that myself, how am I going to raise a next generation of, of allies and advocates? So how do you do that? Like I, I, it's, it's a thing that's been haunting me lately with like, which, where do we lean in the most? Where does that fit into a school day? How do we convince everybody else around us that it should fit into the school day? You know, it's one of those things that's like not tested curricula. It would be what we would call, if we were using jargon, the hidden curriculum, right? The character um, education stuff, the social emotional learning. How do we do that? And what, what do you think the state, how do, how do you think the state board is going to alter and adjust if you could even, if you could even hypothesize, like, what would that be? Gosh, I mean, you know, so the state board doesn't have a lot of, we, we don't have a lot of authority in the decisions that are being made about school opening and those sorts of things. That Those conversations are sort of happening in a vacuum, quite frankly, right? The, the governor and the commissioner of education are, are I guess, they're, they're having conversations with a small cohort of superintendents from across the district, across the state. But, you know, to, to capture all of the need and, and understand the landscape of education in Texas, it's a huge undertaking. And I, I don't know that, that everybody's needs are being considered when they're making decisions, right? And, and then there's a lot of indecision that's also really um, placed a lot of burden on school districts, right? Superintendents are being forced to make decisions that are inconsistent to their neighbors, that are inconsistent to the city next door. And all of that consistency adds to the struggles that we're seeing in really beating this, in beating COVID, right? And, and getting past this so we can get to some kind of normalcy. In terms of, you know, how the state board is going to function differently, I think it's a, it, it really is a matter of how each board member functions within their own district. You know, for my part, I've really, I've tried my best to get into as many spaces as possible <laughs> to talk to individuals, right? To really just get a good understanding of how everybody's feeling about this. Because, you know, on one end of it, you have parents who are like crying and frustrated because they can't 
get a full day's work in because they have little ones they have to attend to. <laughs> yeah, like me. <laughs> I've done it. And, and I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old. It's, it's, it's hard. And you have teachers who so badly want to be back in front of their kids. They want to be in the schools. They're, they're, the, the, the one thing that's holding them back is, you know, their health, their safety. And who, we can't fault them for that. Right. You know, they have loved ones at home. They have children of their own. It's really a struggle. But I think to the point that you made, how do we even, how do we make time and space for this during a school day? And for me, you know, one of the struggles I've always had is, you know, how do you, how do you value qualitative over quantitative? Mm-hmm. And for, for me right now, I mean, there is this reality that we all just need to uh, acknowledge and accept in that every student this school year across Texas, across the nation is going to come back with some sort of regression. Right. right? We've been right. Out of classroom. We've been out of school for such a long time. I think that in order for our students to engage back in their education, we really need to address the qualitative first. How are we talking to the kids about their own social and emotional well-being? So many of them are coming back to the classroom and their parents have lost jobs. You know, they may have had to move during this time into smaller spaces or with families. There, and that's just, you know, a couple of examples. There's so many issues that our kids are coming back to school with that our teachers are coming back to school with, right? It's not just our students that are dealing with social and emotional issues. Our educators are too. Um, so we need to think yeah. about all these things. I saw a post from a teacher in my neighborhood that, you know, she was just saying she's, she had COVID. She's recovering. Um, and it was obviously really scary for her and for the people that she lives with. And then, you know, a neighbor in our same little community just passed away from COVID and you carry that with you. You carry that, you carry that concern and that empathetic feeling that you have for, for having recovered when you know somebody else hasn't and for figuring out like, am I safe? Am I really going to be safe for the reality that people do die from the disease? Even if there are more people who survive it, you still have that one you know, you still know the one person, you know what I mean? And so it's still heavy. It's heavy on everybody's um, hearts and minds. It's like, where do we go from here? And how would we know what the next right move is? Um, And so I think the teacher self care is really important right now too. And how did, how do we honor um, the work that teachers bring and the work that they do and then the stuff that they they show up with anyway like it's one thing to to have the worry it's something different to bring the worry and do do the work anyway Um, and I would say almost every single teacher I know is doing it anyway like despite being afraid or being worried or being uncomfortable with the new method of teaching that we're doing um, they're doing it anyway so you know I think and kids are doing it anyway like we have had really high school's been in session a week um, from based on what I've talked to from my educator friends, they're having pretty good connectivity rates. Like people are actually logging on. Um, it's higher. It's like 80 to 90% plus, which is pretty phenomenal considering. Yeah. I mean, so people are hungry to get on, to be connected to school, to get started and they're doing it despite, you know, all the challenges that exist in different houses across the city. You know, we, I mean, we're 
we are doing all right. Like we're, we're good. We are good. Everyone has their own room that they can work in. But even, even with all of our, our privilege, it's still a struggle because if we're all five on Zoom at the same time, the internet is like really slow. And if someone gets logged off and can't figure out how to get logged on and everybody else is on a call, like it's still panic ensues. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to do. Where, where do I go? You know, and then everybody's trying to turn cameras off and run to another room and tell the, tell whoever they're talking to, I got to step away for a second. You know, they're <laughs> eating and drinking at the same spot that you are zooming is never advisable, but they do it. And so there's all those little things that are still like added stressors to our regular routine that we, we can't even really anticipate for until it's happening. And then you're, and then you're in constant resolution mode where you're like, how am I going to put this fire out? What am I going to do next? And that is like a really stressful way to live. And we don't have some of the space issues. We don't have, a lack of devices. We don't have, we're all healthy in our household and we're still battling to survive. You know, I can't imagine what it's like for people who, who have additional challenges. Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about as you were, as you were talking is, um, you know, there's, there's a small business owner in our neighborhood that, you know, we, we we frequent her business all the time. And uh, I I got to talking to her and she has four kids and uh, one has just transitioned into sixth grade and the, the youngest is in fifth grade. Her sixth grader, he, he's fine. He can do, he'll figure it out. He's got it, right? He's, all, he's a techie, he understands. Her fifth grader is dyslexic and really suffers from anxiety. So she struggles a lot in school. Because this woman and her husband are both business owners, they each, they each manage the shops. Uh, they have two shops, they're each managing one on their own. So the kids are at home all day by themselves. And the sixth grader is responsible for helping the fifth grader get through her assignments in school. And, you know, she was telling me that she and her fifth grader basically cried three days last week trying to figure out how to do this because she has, on one end, she has a fifth grader crying that can't get through her school day. And on the other end, she has a sixth grade teacher who's calling her and telling her that her sixth grade son is screwing around and he's not in class. And the teacher isn't asking, you know, what's happening. She, it's, it's sort of an accusatory approach to why he isn't engaging. Well, he's not engaging because he's helping his fifth grade sister who's struggling. And so this mom who's a small business owner is struggling to figure out how to manage on top of trying to figure out how to keep her business going. And so it's just a really heartbreaking situation. And then in my conversation with her, she was so graceful in that she told me, you know, I, I don't, and I don't know what stresses the sixth grade teacher is under. So I feel bad for her because I understand she probably doesn't even have time to ask my son why, because she's trying to figure things out. So I think that there's this level of grace that exists, but we're still not at a point where we're all talking to each other. Um, and everything is so new, right? Like school just started last week. And, you know, for some school started today. Uh, and we're seeing struggles everywhere, but those sorts of stories are really heartbreaking for me. And in every conversation I've had in every different like realm I've traveled, I've learned something new. I've heard a new challenge. Um, I'm always surprised about things that I hear that I would have never thought about. Um, so it, it's, it's insane. 
Yeah, you know, I, um, when we talked about a month ago, we sat down with our SALT community and the things that were top of mind were like how um, teachers being approached and, and being asked to quit their full-time teaching job to facilitate private learning pods in the communities. And then there were concerns about like what happens if, um, if I get sick and have to take time off, does it come out of my sick leave? what if it's not, you know, what if my, my, um, the only contact I've had with a sick person is because of my job? Why should that come out of my sick leave time? Um, they had really big questions about why teachers are consistently put in the position to sacrifice for the greater good or for the economy, um, that they felt really much like we shouldn't be guilted into doing something we don't owe or feeling like we owe society that kind of thing um, and worried about furniture and whether or not there was going to be enough in the furniture um, having like unclear communication like are those the kinds of things you're still hearing as you're talking or have they like evolved into newer concerns uh, yes and yes. So I'm still <laughs> doing those sorts of things and they have evolved. So I'll, I'll tell you in the time that we talked, so we were just talking, we were just talking about this, right? So much has changed in the last month. And unfortunately over the last four months, that is, that has not, it's no longer a unique thing to have things change from the, right. but I know if I had a dollar for every time somebody said it's fluid, oh I would be, <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, and, and so imagine like this is this is the environment in which our school district leaders and our educators are having to function, right? It's 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 hard when you don't have even the consistent messaging to yeah. get across to people. And so like the perfect example is one week you have Governor Greg Abbott talking about yes, your local health authorities can help support when schools should open and close. And then a week later, you have the attorney general um, saying, nope, they don't have the authority. And so from one week to the next, I mean, complete policy, you see a complete policy shift and people don't know who to turn to. And, and so, you know, that's one struggle. I think another thing that's really, it, it's funny because I've seen so much about these learning pods, um, just national. And then in our conversation with you, I was completely floored. I hadn't heard about that until you and I had had a conversation. And then it became more of like a regular thing. But the interesting thing, Jen, that I, I found in speaking to uh, public school educators that were that started to talk to me about this was that the, so many of them, the majority of them were like, no, I would never think to do that because it's so inequitable. And so that just goes to show you what kind of educators we have in Texas, right? I got chills thinking about it because they were like, you know, attractive and an option that sounds for me. What does that mean for all the families that can't afford to do this? Mm -hmm. All of those kids are still being exposed and the poor teachers that aren't being approached with this option are right. also continuing to be exposed. So it, there's no, there's no level of fairness in that. And, um, and for me, as I'm thinking, I'm, of course, I'm thinking practically, so great, you take this job on, but who's to say you're not exposed with the families who have hired you? And then what happens when you get sick? Are they paying your medical expenses as well? Are they paying your insurance? Like, how does that work? So there are just a lot of different, that's just a really complex situation. And, and quite frankly, I think it's risky in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I agree completely. I, it was a little bit shocking for me, too, to have so many people 
text me and say like, Hey, have you heard about, has anyone approached you? Have you heard about this? Do you know? And then sometimes too, like, do you know anybody who would be willing to do this? Um, there are organizations, like there is an, uh, there are businesses who run learning pods and have existed for a really long time. Um, and they're, they appear to be pretty respectful and responsible with how they approach the learning pod and how they approach equity. But I still am like you trying to figure out like how, how equitable is it if you're still um, having to pay into that at all, like at at any amount. Um, Carlos and I, we've really thought a lot about like with our youngest Elise having some support and some help, even through some of the agencies that she participated with, like for after school stuff. So she goes to a gymnastics class and especially on holiday breaks and summer breaks, she's at gymnastics. That's what they offer full day camps and we sign her up because it's, she loves it and it's convenient. Um, and they, they told us probably late in the summer, we're not going to do our full day camp for the summer break because COVID numbers are still so high. But if things look better in the fall, what we will do is provide distance learning rooms and you can drop your child off with their school issued device and we will sit with them and make sure that they log into their class and that they understand what the assignment is and then that they have supervised work time. And I'm like, whoa, okay, that's hard to pass up. (laughs) 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 So I feel like there's also this unique um, momentum to think creatively and to try to solve this as a community. And I appreciated the business stepping in and saying like, okay, let's change our business model and figure out how we can help our community, even if it, because it's, it's a win-win for them. They're still going to generate income. Um, And like they're reaching out to families that were already participating in after school care or in their, their day-to-day camps. I think there's like a new wave of um, education entrepreneurism that's headed our direction. I think blended learning is taken on like a whole new trajectory. I think blended, you know, I was talking to um, one of our superintendents the other day and he was telling me like, we've always had the capacity to be on Google. We've always had that since Google Classroom came into existence, we have known how to set up Google Classrooms, but we've always treated it as an enrichment or an enhancement or an opt-in or a pilot where we would pilot these technological things. And then for those people who are really inclined and who are really comfortable, we would continue to support the work that they were doing digitally. And overnight, we went from like maybe 10 to 15% of our teachers who were hosting classes or content even, not classes, just content on Google Classroom to 100% of our teaching staff having Google Classrooms and not just hosting content, but creating the content on in, in any digital platform. And so I think like there's this whole new wave of, of um, support that's going to need to be provided to all of our educators as they like navigate, okay, how am I going to work from home and be a, and be a parent? How am I going to teach and have my students online learning from somebody else? And then on top of that, like, how do I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing digitally as I create content and I, I post content? Like, hosting content is easy. 
creating content is something entirely different. So I've been thinking through a lot of those things too, when it comes to like all the new things we're asking teachers to do and to do it really quickly. Yeah, for sure. You know, in addition to having to just deliver this instruction in a new medium, you're also having to create a new medium to your point. It's, it's funny. So I laugh because I've been, you since since March, I have been engaged in so many Zoom meetings. <laughs> like I like Zoom is my life, like most people. Um, but it's funny because I laugh with my husband that I've been invited to all of the Zooms that I participate in. I've not had to set up like a formal professional Zoom yet. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> asking to do that, I'm going to be lost. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what our educators who have never truly gone, you know, digital are having to, to do now, again, to your point, in a really short amount of time. And not only are they having to set up these classrooms, they're having to create spaces where the conversation attempts to mimic what you would feel, feel in a classroom. And that's, for me, that's impossible, right? I'm very much like a tangible, like it, it needs something. I need to be in front of people. I need to be able to see and touch and I get very sensory oriented. Mm-hmm. And so even learning and even learning like this for me, and I'm in school, this is a struggle for me. And so, and I'm an adult, right? No. And I, you know, I was teasing earlier when I was texting you this morning and I, you asked me how I was and I'm like, I don't know, I'm in a Gen X angst right now because these Gen Xers, we didn't do any of this, not in school. I mean, it was like just on the horizon, right? I mean, So for me, and and most of my work and most of my school, I learned, um, like you, I needed to be in person, having real conversations, doing the actual work um, simultaneously so that I could turn to my partner and say, like, wait, what did she just say? Or how did, can I, what, can you show me what she's talking about? Or can you, like, those were, that's how I've um, grown up, honestly. I mean, and then being out of touch with everybody, right? Like just be in my generation, we didn't, you couldn't track me down. That didn't exist. So all of this, like, where are you? Why aren't you here? Turn your camera on. It's freakish for me. <laughs> I, am having, like, I am having real issues aside from just being middle-aged now. Right. So like all my generation Xers, I'm like, I feel you, man. We're, we have to do our midlife crisis all over zoom. Like, we can't even midlife crisis in person. It's hilarious to me and it's hard. It's just yeah. hard. It's a really, so I think, you know, millennials have a little bit on us because they, they grew up in the era of already getting all so much of, of content. I think I was in a blended learning session the other day and it was something like teenagers today. And I guess they're not millennials, but the, the youngest generation teenagers, they uh, spend on their own by choice seven and a half hours every day consuming media content oh lord that that is like a full-time job that's insane well you know and for me this the sad part about that i mean i guess if you're going to go into an into tech business right or if you're going to be navigating spaces where technology is really really critical to your work that's great but for me there's this huge social piece that's still missing that you know i think so many of our students and our educators and, and people who work in school systems are, are really missing out on because we have to be, you know, 
doing education digitally right now for a lot of different reasons. I completely agree with, you know, us not going back physically. There, there's just, there aren't enough safe safety precautions that have been taken that have been mandated from my perspective um, to ensure the safety as much as possible of our educators and our students. But, you know, the, 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 there's this piece of me, right? The very, I, I'm an extrovert, right? The extrovert in me says, we need to be in front of people. We need to be having conversations and laughing and hugging and, you know, playing sports together. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, I don't, I won't, I won't go as far as saying that I fear for this generation of learners. I've heard that thrown out and I don't, I don't buy into that. This is, this is temporary, right? Agreed. Um, but what I do really believe is that the the adults that are in the social spheres of these students really need to figure out how to support that social piece uh, in a different way for the time being. And I agree. I mean, it's really a challenge. I feel like I've built like when we talk sometimes around core values and around like personal core values and family core values. I think that I would name as a core value that Carlos and I try really hard to instill because it's been instilled in us. It's like sharing a meal with people, right? That we're, we, I would say we're really big on like being gatherers. Like you come to the table to have a meal. We eat together, even if it's not like a scheduled formal thing, we will still grab food and sit and talk. Um, it's what we do. It's what we do with our friends. It's what we do with our families. Um, and it's, it's so much harder to do that. And, I, and lately, I've been also talking a lot about culture and about I've been sitting in sessions around um, how to develop culturally relevant classrooms and culturally relevant teachers. And I think it's even harder when, when so much of our culture as people of color and as people who have roots um, in an indigenous culture, everything revolves around community and coming together and talking it out and sitting with elders and sharing a meal and breaking bread and having that fellowship is so intrinsic to the way we are and who we are and not being able to do that in person is also like very challenging. So I do think you're right that we, the adults in the conversation who could put an, uh, a label to what we're feeling and what we're describing and who could, who can sit back just far enough to say like, I have the language to describe why this is hard for kids. It's, it's that it's culturally irrelevant to sit in front of a screen and try to interact with somebody this way is just a really big challenge. And we're not, it hasn't, we haven't been brought up this way in a lot of cases. And so I think like having that conversation and pushing um, policies and protocols and state standards that sound like how do we incorporate those culture pieces is really, really critical. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the cultural studies that you've been working on. Yeah, I mean, so thank you, because this is sort of my pa my passion work, right? I Since I got on the board in, 20, in 2013, we've been having these conversations, and for anybody that followed the ethnic studies adoption, it took us almost six years to pass Mexican-American studies, and that was because there is just this sentiment that if you do anything outside of your status quo, traditional history, you know, teachings, then it's unpatriotic or, you know, there's some sort of um, combativeness to the, to the conversation, right? And anti-American. And 
and so we had to fight a lot of those battles. So much of that rhetoric was just, uh, I want to say, I mean, it felt hateful. It felt hateful. Most of it was coming from just a very um, misinformed position, right? People who've never had this history, ironically, right? If they had had this education, perhaps they would look at this differently. And so, um, so pushing for Mexican American cities was really the first, for me, was, it was the first step because we were, we put a call out to everybody across the state and we just had so many individuals who wanted to learn on a deep level about their own histories and through the process, you know, it, it took us years to do it. So I was able to learn alongside so many just brilliant historians and activists and people who were so passionate to see this happen that I learned so much about my own history that, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know that Latinos, that, that Latinx people were being, uh, were, were, were being lynched, right? There's a, I didn't realize that the King Ranch was a huge perpetrator of lynching of, not just men, but women, children, the elderly, they, it was, it was awful. And so to learn that was just so impactful for me as an adult that I feel if we teach our youth young about these histories, right, the good, the bad, the ugly, then there is this level of respect and understanding that we build from a very young age. That way, once these youth matriculate out of K-12 education into career or uh, into institutions of higher education, they better know how to maneuver through relationships with people who are not like them. And it doesn't even have to be just racially, right? If they're socioeconomically different from these individuals, how do we interact in ways that are respectful but uh, acknowledge our difference and appreciate and value difference. And so it's always been really, really important for me. And so after Mexican-American studies, we just had this influx of people who wanted to see African-American studies. Uh, and because of the foundation that Mexican-American studies laid and all of the do's and don'ts we learned through the process, uh, we got to see African-American studies come to fruition within nine months, which is super exciting. Um, and then you have an organizations like the Spurs who are interested in getting involved in this conversation because they recognize that racial inequities and racism and institutional racism and all of that, a way to combat those sorts of things and to dismantle these oppressive systems is to teach our youth the truth, right? Don't keep, yes. don't sugarcoat what's happened. And show the progress because we, we have made progress it's been slow moving and um and and it's we're not where we want to be where we where we need to be but we've made progress mm -hmm. and so um it's interesting it, it, it's i love this work and i'm not afraid to have conversations about race I, I i engage in these conversations all the time but i have found that there are a lot of adults uh who are very uncomfortable and it's not just uh, are, it's not just white, the white community. Mm -hmm. I think there, we, we experience issues of colorism in the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. they're, they're exciting conversations to have because I think there's a lot of action that can be taken once we come to an understanding that this discourse is necessary and that we, we value difference. Um, but it's a matter of getting there and having, again, um, educators that are willing to uh, embrace these sorts of curriculums and, um, and have conversations like this. But I think to your point, again, you, you mentioned earlier, like when 
you know, how do you involve this culturally relevant pedagogy? How do you, you know, include this curriculum? And I think for me, one of the selling points, if I were in a classroom today, is you, this is the perfect time to implement some sort of culturally relevant curriculum uh, or pedagogy, because that's the way you bring kids who have been out of the public education system for months, uh, for months, this is how you get them excited about school again. Come back to the class, let's learn about your history. Your history that's a part of American history that we've never talked about. Come and learn. You're important. We see you. You, you exist and your people have existed for a very long time in the system and have in fact contributed in beautiful ways. You're valued, right? And bring them back. For me, that's what, that's what brings the kids back into their education. And it doesn't just have to happen in history. There, people have contributed, people of color have contributed for, you know, for as long as this country has been, this country, to, the, to math, to science, yeah. to literacy, right? It's everywhere. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And I think you're so right about it being like, this is the moment. This is, it's almost it's almost too good that you did this just before COVID, right? Like that now there, this avenue exists and, and this opportunity to stand firm on this solid ground that you can teach the truth to youth and then, and to recognize and cherish the identity that we all have, like that every single person who is born anywhere has an identity that is so true and so real to them that they can't separate it just because they're going to go to school today, you know? And so to, and that's true for teachers too. Like you can't, the two things can't co, they, they don't coexist. They exist there. It's, and it's, it's not, but it's, it's together. Um, who you are is who, what you teach, right? Like I, I have been rethinking, I've read this book before, um, The Courage to Teach. Have you read that book? I have not read it. so amazing. It, it's written by a man named Parker Palmer. And it is um, just such, such a real way of looking at teaching as a courageous act of leadership. And of, um, it resonates with me because what he says is like, there, there are, I don't know. I like, I like talking about courage in general. I like Brené Brown's work about courage and vulnerability. Um, I think we're engaging at CAST with a new initiative around purpose education and helping our students really learn more about themselves and their family values and their core values. And then using that to write a life purpose statement. Like I exist in this life to do X, Y, Z based on their core values and their family values. And then how that becomes the, the propellant that drives them through the coursework that they're engaged in. Um, and, and to me, like that is, that is, exactly what happens with teachers too is you think through like how did you arrive at this moment why are you in the place where you are right now what did that have to do with your with your community your culture your ethnicity your ex life experiences how did you get to today and then could we use all of the answers to those questions to write like this life purpose for teaching and then have that be the propellant because there are so many other things there's so many reasons why not to teach right now that I, I, I do think like, and I hear them every day. It's, it's scary. It's risky. I'm not a martyr. I shouldn't have to be a martyr. 
I am not getting clear direction from my leadership. All of those things are true. And you have this other life purpose that you can pull from if we only recognize it. And I think it's true for our students and I think that's true for teachers. Parker Palmer's book is really good at calling that out. So I'm gonna read a quote and then you can tell me what your thoughts are. Um, but here's what he says. Here's a secret hidden in plain sight. Good teaching cannot be reduced to technique. Good teaching comes from the identity and integrity of the teacher. In every class I teach, my ability to connect with my students and to connect with them with the subject depends less on the methods I use than on the degree to which I know and trust my selfhood. And I'm willing to make it available and vulnerable in the service of learning. And I think we need to help our students get in touch with who they are. Uh, and so that just really, especially today when all of the methods of teaching that we used to know are being challenged and we're having to create new methods of teaching. Um, but the new method isn't what makes a good teacher. Uh, so I, as I was listening, it was just, it, it was, uh, I had a smile on my face the entire time. You can't see me, but uh, I was smiling the entire time because I, I love the idea about how identity and integrity what, are what make the teacher. Uh, and, and to your point, Jen, you talk about, you know, not, not, it's not a matter of coexistence, it's existence, right? It's a single existence that we're all in together. And I love that there's, this, I don't think I've heard it said like that before. And I, I just, I think that's beautiful because it's true. And so when I think about your statement and I think about the quote you read, I think about what it means for a teacher to be self-reflective and self-aware. And, uh, and that involves being, you know, honest with oneself, you have to think about your positionality, you know, all of the, all of the life experiences and the choices you've made that have brought you to where you are and the, the power that you hold in the position that you have and what that means for the people around you. That's number one, right? But then thinking about the intersectionality of that, like where your personality and your characteristics and who you are and how you identify as a person, how all of that has multiple layers and how each one of those layers can touch any student in your classroom because you'll be connected in some way. So tapping, understanding how you tap your, inter your intersectionality to relate to your kids, I think is a really beautiful way of approaching education because I think it's true, right? You, you can use whatever method possible and think you're going to be successful. But like as a student, I know if you didn't come across as like real to me, I wasn't going to pay attention to you, right? If I didn't think that you cared about whether or not I was really going to learn anything, I didn't pay attention to you. And I was a good kid. And so, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get into trouble. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't, you know, I didn't ruffle feathers, but I still knew who was real with me and who really cared. And for me, that's what's really important. And I think that in the time that we're in right now, all of our educators, I know this is a message, a special message for our educators. I know they're struggling, right? My heart breaks because I know that you guys are being asked. And I'm going to try not to get emotional. I know you're being asked to do really impossible things. And it's frustrating because so many of my friends are educators and it's, it's infuriating. But you guys are superheroes. Y'all are superheroes and you're carrying the weight of the world right now because everything that moves forward 
is reliant on how you all perform. And that's a lot of pressure. But understand that people know that you're human. And you have a lot of families that care and love you too. Thank you for everything you do because that, at the end of the day, we're all human. And just because a couple of people in power don't recognize their power and they don't stop to look at their positionality doesn't mean that we're all like that. And so we love our educators. Thank you so much, Marisa. I got, you got me. So I'm going to take another drink of my wine and I'm going to think on everything we talked about and reiterate that you are so appreciated. Thank you, Marisa. You are appreciated. We, we need people like you directing the conversations when we can't be there ourselves. So thank you so much. And thanks for joining us tonight. Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy to, to join you, Jen. It's always fun. <laughs> well, we'll see each other soon. All right. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.